Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So today we've got a uh, you know, very special episode of just the three hosts, no guests, and we're going to talk about some kind of uh, timely summer 2023 topics. So we're recording on June 5th, 2023, and we're going to start out by talking about the debt ceiling fight, uh, which was just resolved with two days uh, or days to spare. Um, And we're also going to talk about the upcoming 2024 presidential election and specifically what we might kind of take it to mean if this turns into a a rematch between President Biden and former President Trump. So we're going to start off with the debt ceiling fight. I had a number of takeaways from kind of watching this from a party politics and cross institutional and inner branch kind of perspective. I wrote a little bit about it on my Substack about how Biden might be thinking about his coalition and what kinds of directions to go. But one of the things that I thought a lot about over the course of the fight was how this actually exemplified several different ways of characterizing polarization. And one was thinking about actual substance. There were a number of moments when the issue with the negotiations was, well, the left or the right are simply too far apart on the kinds and the numbers and, you know, the cuts and the programs and that they're legitimately very different worldviews and political philosophies and policy preferences. And that's one kind of vision of polarization that's very, it's very spatial, it's very policy oriented, that suggests that the differences between two parties are really substantive. And on the other hand, there's this sort of different view of polarization that it's really just about teams and winning and the kind of zero-sum nature of two-party politics, which you've maybe heard Lee talk a little bit about at some point in your life. And, you know, I thought that that was really exemplified in the whole framing of, of the issue and this idea that, well, ultimately, Republicans who control the House are trying to hand Biden some kind of loss. And you did see in the aftermath of the fight a lot of kind of talk about um, who who won and lost. Although it, what you know, one thing that was interesting to me was that it, it kind of it kind of ultimately was a wash. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I, I did see these two forms of polarization, and then it got me thinking about the kind of team based versus issue based polarization at work in the debt ceiling and the ways in which these both might be related to. I think what, you know, ultimately was something that there was a lot of concern about in at least, you know, kind of in my circles and across my Twitter field that's feed that's a lot of academics and kind of left-leaning journalists, which is this question of whether one side or maybe even potentially both sides, but usually it's framed in terms of just one side, whether they're kind of willing to to blow it all up and ultimately kind of not invested in the good of the nation. That I thought was really, you know, was was all on display. And so it was an interesting kind of example of the different ways that polarization plays itself out in American politics. What about you, James? I know you have slightly different thoughts as a Republican and a Congress watcher. Well, and as a, uh, a conservative, post-modernist, post-structuralist Derrida fan, no, um, I, 
I'm really intrigued by this. I'm intrigued by both uh, the outcome in this debate, which I find incredibly underwhelming, especially when compared to prior debt limit fights like, say, 2011, but also in, in terms of how we react to it. Because we have this five-month period leading up to this debate where it's cataclysmic, make or break, do or die, the whole world's going to end. And then it's very anticlimactic uh, how it just kind of resolves itself, which is probably generally going to be the case. And I think that's very interesting because the debt limit and, and how we cover it, the stories we tell are just our way of making sense of it. And so, like, as you've emphasized as well, we turn to the presidency, we turn to Joe Biden, we turn to the leadership and the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. We turn to individuals that we can identify and point to and say they are the reason they are the cause. And, and these individuals certainly have a, play a, a large role in it, but there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more going on here. And I think that the Senate in particular and how it handled House passage of the ultimate compromise deal and how it passed it so quickly is very striking. Because you had senators who have lots of ability under the rules to do things on the, both the left and the right. Prior to this vote, you have a vote on student loan. Um, it's not the same issue as the student loan provision in the bill, but it was close enough related to signal that there are a significant number of Senate Democrats who are opposed to rolling back uh, the president's actions on student loans. And so in the 1970s or 80s or even early 90s, an enterprising conservative senator may try to offer, say, an amendment to the bill to strike those provisions, to see what would happen with the Democrats, at least, and to see if that puts them in a difficult spot and, see, and to see if that changes it. And then by changing it, sending it back to the House. Um, but instead, there's this sense that we can't even, we can't offer amendments. We can't we can't debate the bill, so we have no choice but to agree to a unanimous consent request to expedite the debate, to basically preclude all amendments, which is senators in, this, in essence disenfranchising themselves. Senators who say they are sick of being disenfranchised, disenfranchising themselves, and ultimately putting this bill on a uh, expedited path to the White House. And so to me, there are two explanations for that very quickly. One is that uh, they're scared of the outcome. I think there are a good number of senators who would rather not see this bill passed, but at the end of the day are unsure about what happens if it doesn't. And I think that is a big, important factor that the press in particular has emphasized. But I think another important factor, equally if not more important, is the lack of familiarity with what it's like to be a senator. Most of these senators do not remember a time where they could do that kind of thing, where they could upset the apple cart, where they could you know, throw some sand in the gears and try to create a new reality. And, and, and I think that's really instructive. And you see that both not on, just on the right, but also on the left. It's like if you want to change something, you have to change it before it gets to the floor. If you want to change and persuade people to do something differently, you need to persuade those leaders, that speaker, the president to do something differently. But you yourself do not have the agency and the ability to act on behalf of your constituents to achieve your goals. And so I think it's those two things in, com uh, in combination that really help to speed this thing through the Senate. Well, I mean, the obvious thing that helped speed this thing through the Senate was this so-called X state that the U.S. was going to have to do some crazy financial stuff that would royal global markets. Now, you know, maybe you're of the view that, that this was 
just some sort of bluff by Janet Yellen. I mean, there was you know, certainly some folks who were suggesting that. But I mean, part part of the challenge here is that there are few other opportunities, to, James, to, to your point, uh, just the Senate is not spending a lot of time debating legislation. Uh, House is not spending a ton of time debating legislation. So to to expect members to and senators to offer amendments on a bunch of stuff, right? Like the, the Senate should just spend more time debating and taking up legislation. This was a somewhat unique and special piece of legislation, obviously. Now, Julia, I want to get to your point about the the fundamental asymmetry here. Uh, And I I think this is something that's come up quite a bit as people have tried to make sense of, is the Progressive Caucus like the Freedom Caucus or is the Progressive Caucus not like the Freedom Caucus? And to me, there's, there's a core fundamental difference, which is basically that the Progressive Caucus wants government to do things. And in order for government to do things, they need to pass legislation. And the Freedom Caucus wants the federal government not to do things. So in order to get the federal government not to do things, they are willing to oppose legislation. And it's always easier to stop legislation in the U.S. system than to pass legislation. And when you're on the side of, I'm willing to blow it all up to get what I want because I don't really care about the federal government doing big things, then that is fundamentally different from being, I'm on the side of, I want the federal government to do a lot of things. And so I need to build majorities. And I I think that is where the asymmetry is really fundamental. The other, as, a, as an extension of that, I think that one way to think of, of the Republican Party is as a 90-year opposition party. Basically, starting with the New Deal and you see the continued expansion of the federal government, almost all of those programs are programs that have been passed under democratic control. Military is a slight exception there and is the thing that that has also been somewhat confusing in this size of government because the Republicans seem to want to spend a lot of money on the on the military. Uh, but nonetheless, most of the programs are Democratic programs that Republicans have been in the opposition uh, to. And so what you see in the Freedom Caucus, I think, is some uh, growing frustration that comes with being in the opposition, essentially, for for 90 years. Yeah, I mean, obviously, some people might see this sort of differently. But the thing that I keep coming back to is that this is the issues that were actually being discussed in the course of these debt ceiling negotiations are sort of the ones that explain why this is a 90 year minority party, um, which is that cutting entitlements is not super popular. And that the way that the United States has structured its sort of safety net and regulatory regime around business and all sorts of things have actually, you know, are quite minimal compared to other advanced industrial democracies. We all know this and that, these are really unpopular positions and that it's, you know, when we often have a situation which neither party really quite has a majority 
And this isn't to say all democratic positions are popular. They're not. Um, But this is sort of the backbone of the party is cutting spending. And when it comes down to it, public opinion is kind of mixed at best and negative (laughs) at worst on these issues. It does sort of illustrate um, why this is why this is a minority party. And I think that there's one of the mistakes we often make when we talk about the broader crisis of democracy in American politics is the linkage between some of these policy issues and the kinds of tactics that then emerge. Sometimes the kinds of things I'm talking about are then linked to a kind of broader political frustration and populism. That's probably another podcast. Um, but the thing that I also see there is this sort of willingness to resort to more severe tactics. And that's, I think, really the kind of interesting question here is to what extent were Republicans willing to really let let the country, you know, see what happens if we, we can't pay our debts? And like you said, maybe Janet Yellen was was bluffing. Um, maybe I wrote a bit about this on my Substack, which is conveniently named Julia Azari. <laughs> so you can easily find it. Um, which I, I sort of thought about the politics of Biden doing these more severe things. I think a little bit of everyone wanted him to mint a trillion dollar coin in the same way that we want to see a brokered convention or see some like utterly absurd political event happen. Um, that obviously didn't no one does change anymore, Julia. I mean, since the pandemic, that no one has changed everywhere I go. So I'm not sure the million, the trillion dollar coin thing right. was going to work. No, exactly. You can't even buy a burrito at the airport with a trillion dollar coin because it's all, it's all. I cashless. tried to buy a cup of coffee with a bunch of nickels a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and the lady looked at me like I was from another planet. I mean, there's cash and there's nickels, James. Um, so like, okay, but putting aside, that's that is okay. I'm imagining you at the airport coffee and then Biden with the trillion dollar coin. And it's just like a parade of old men and their coinage. Um, I'm sorry. That was a cheap shot. I'm older than you in case it's um, in case anyone thinks I'm being a giant asshole. Anyway. So I also like to bring my coinage to the farmer's market, which is totally fine there. But several of my friends have expressed their disagreement with that strategy. So anyway, um, what were we talking about? The debt ceiling. So Here's but here's sort of my other takeaway, which is like I'm watching this. I'm watching this as sort of a presidency party's person. I'm watching this as someone who's more than happy to free ride off other people's uh, attention and interest in Congress. And so I'm kind of watching it from that lens. And it's like one day the world is going to end, and the two parties are they're too far apart. And the Freedom Caucus doesn't, you know, give a shit if the country completely disintegrates. And then I'm sort of paraphrasing the media narratives. And the next day, we have a negotiation. We have an outcome in which actually both parties gave a little. Everyone actually got enough of what they want that both sides are sort of portraying it. And, you know, oh, you know, we lost or we won. You know, it's very like this very... um, open to interpretation and um, both sides can claim victimhood, both sides can claim victory, whatever. And I'm like, okay, this seems actually like pretty functional. Like the outcome looked, if you just looked at the outcome, you would say, okay, you know, what is the debt ceiling? Why is there a debt ceiling? But if you just look at it generally as a negotiation, it would look like one that kind of made sense. And you know, the, the folks in the bulwark who put out a lot of podcast content. So I listen to them a lot, um, have been kind of, 
you know, praising the whole thing as being evidence of adults in the room. But what's interesting to me is that all of that happened in this backdrop of this sort of deeply abnormal politics and abnormal politics that really fits into a larger set of questions about America's kind of role and status in the world as as a leading economy, as a leading democracy, and you know, can, you know, can we really function that way? And so it's like, all that's at stake. And then in the end, it's like, oh, this looks, you know, like a, like a negotiation between, I don't know, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich or something where there was, you know, there was government shutdown at one point, there were some nasty things, but it didn't feel quite as existential. And I think that's really the, the puzzle that I've been contending with. There's a weird thing that's happening in our politics that, there's this thin line between performance and reality in the sense that a lot of what happens around these negotiations is theatrics, right? There's a sort of posturing, we're not going to give anything. You know, no, we're not going to give anything. No, we're going to make you pay. No, we're going to win. Uh, and at the end of the day, there's, I think, very few people who actually understand the substance of how to do these deals. And so you have a limited number of people in the room who know how to write these bills and are just sort of writing them. And then they go out and say, all right, well, this is what we won and this is what we won. And a bunch of people who don't really know how to read these bills, including the media, including a lot of members of Congress who say, okay, well, then I guess I can support it, or I guess I have to stand up against this and not support it because that's my posture. So there's a kind of weird macro performance of a lot of people who don't really understand the substance, while there's a handful of people who who seem to understand the substance, who actually make the deals. Now, it, it, it all has this, to, you know, it, the way you describe it, Julia, it has this kind of surreal quality. Uh, but you know, I, I think this is sort of how a lot of stuff happens in politics and, you know, maybe even global affairs and, and international conflict is that there's like a handful of people who actually know what they're doing and make the decisions and a whole lot of people who are putting pressure on these people to do one thing or another and, you know, don't really have a way of evaluating what they're actually doing. And, you know, at the end of the day, sure, there are adults in the room, there are a handful of people who know what they're doing, who, who can manage this, and we all depend on them. But the question that I still have is, was this inevitable? Like, was this always going to happen? Or could people have miscalculated? Uh, right, because sort of like brinksmanship is fine if everybody knows they're just playing around with toy guns, but if somebody accidentally fires a shot into the crowd, suddenly things go crazy. I mean, that implies that there is no choice in the end. Would a debt limit increase have happened? I think yes. The question is what kind of bill passes? This gets us to 2011, where conservatives were very instrumental over a month, series of months of creating an environment in which the only bill they could get was the BCA, which they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But the, the, the whole idea of like the adults in the room, the people who know what they're doing, um, you know, the 
I think Chip Roy probably has a better grasp of legislative strategy and the intricacies of how to to maneuver when the status quo is opposed to you and to create a new reality that gets you some of your goals than most of the people negotiating this bill, based on my own experience there. So I, I think it's more about a question of, do they have a broader appreciation of, you know, of, of strategy more generally? I mean, if you're the chair of a committee and you've been handed this gavel, you're on the speakers at your, in the, their skills that go into getting that I know. And then you're a, a key ally of the speaker. You expect people to listen to you. You expect to cut deals that people will support. And when the media and the leadership and the presidency and the other chamber and the other party are all opposed to you, my guess is you're probably not going to get as far as, as people as a member like, say, Chip Roy, who, who's done, I think, a lot of very impressive stuff, both from a policy perspective, but also from a more procedural perspective. But the last thing I would just flag here is that we are talking as if the outcome has already been decided when Congress is the place where that outcome is, in fact, decided, no matter how horrific the consequences may be, no matter how whatever that may be. The fact is that it's up to Congress and they have to make they have to argue and they debate and they use all the leverage they can. And ultimately, if one side overreaches, then the people probably blame them pretty badly. But James, sure, Chip Roy seems like he pays attention to the details. Uh, I think he's maybe somewhat unique in somebody who, as somebody who has a, a relatively detail-oriented view of this. I think a lot of what is happening is that you have a lot of members who, if they sat down and actually read the bill, they, they wouldn't know how to make any sense of it. They rely on their staff, who in turn rely on the talking points that they get from the party leadership uh, or what they read in the press. I suspect that's all members. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's a general tendency among all legislators, regardless of whether they're in the room or not in leadership or not. Look, I don't think Kevin McCarthy has a very fine tuned sense of how the, you know, the Graham Rudman Hollings bill of the mid 80s for deficit caps ultimately creates the sequestration procedure that we're still linking back to in the BEA and the BCA and now this bill. Like, I don't think he knows his staff does. But does he not? I mean, that doesn't separate him from the the kind of the rank and file or even the outliers in this respect. Right. So most members are just not engaged in that level of substance. There's a lot of posturing, not a lot of substance. But given the complexities of the federal budget and the number of things that lawmakers have to deal with and have to have some understanding of, I mean, that division of labor makes some sense. You know, I think the, the Congress that... Y- you long for is one where individual members are really engaged in the substance and have a procedural acumen that I just think very few of them are interested in having. I just want one where they want to win. Well, I I mean, or, or they just want to be senators or they just want to be members of Congress, right? I mean, like they just like doing that or they feel like they want to be part of that team. And so I think some of our analysis has to come from the perspective of of what these folks think it is that they are doing when they're there. And it doesn't seem like many of them want to be entrepreneurs or really reshape the terrain. And maybe that's a problem, but you can't have too many of those folks or else things become totally chaotic. All right. I mean, I guess for me, the the big question is whether the impulse for 
individual members to win, this sort of Mayhew thought, you know, is compatible or sort of somehow in aggregate makes up a national interest. To me, that's, and that's a very presidential kind of lens for thinking about that. But I think that's, that's really sort of where we, um, where we go with some of these questions. But uh, since this is a podcast about generating more questions than answers, we're, we're going to leave it there um, and move into our next topic, which is looking forward to the 2024 presidential election, or maybe not looking forward, maybe looking with an intense sense of dread. Um, the 2024 presidential election looks like it's, you know, quite possibly going to be a Biden-Trump um, rematch. I mean, we, we obviously, you know, Biden is the incumbent president. He's intended, he's announced his intent to run for re-election. And so far, um, the challenges to him are maybe not super serious. So Lee, why don't you tell us why you think that uh, you think this is likely to be the case, the 2024 will be a Biden-Trump rematch. And then I'm, I'm going to uh, tag you in, James, to kind of uh, explain to us why is the GOP going with Trump? What, you know, maybe they're not. What does that mean? Whatever else you want to say. And then I have been really, I have to admit, like, just filled with pent up thoughts about Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland and Adlai Stevenson. Um, a friend, friend of the pod, Seth Maskett had a blog post over the weekend about, um, about rematches in history. And it's kind of focused on the fundamentals in the general election on his Substack Tusk. And so anyway, since reading that post, I've just been like, just had so many, so many thoughts about the underlying party dynamics of how these rematches end up happening and, and what they mean. So I've given myself the last word because that is the privilege when you host the podcast. But I'll hand it to you, Lee, for the first word. What? You, Julia, obsessing over presidential history? Um, so uh, is it going to be a, a Biden-Trump rematch? Certainly looking that way. I think Democrats... Uh, have pretty much cleared the field for Biden, and unless there's some sudden turn in his health, uh, he he will be the nominee. Uh, uh, Trump certainly seems to be in the strongest position among Republicans. I think Trump's basically getting the fractured field that he wants. Uh, he is the preferred candidate of probably, I would say, about 35 to 40 percent of Republicans, and unless you know, the opposition to him within the party coalesces around a single candidate, uh, Trump will almost certainly win because the Republicans have a uh, primary calendar that allots a lot of delegates very early in the process uh, to whoever wins a bunch of early primaries starting in March. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's possible that things could go in a different direction. But at this point, I'd say it seems pretty likely that Trump will be the nominee. And the thing that is really weird is that you have this presidential matchup that it seems like most people want something different. Most people in this country, very few people are cheering for a Biden-Trump Matchup. I think a lot of Democrats would like to move on from Biden. A lot of Republicans would like to move on to Trump. 
But in both parties, it's not clear who the alternative would be that unites the different factions of the party together, which I think is something that you'll talk a little bit more about, Julia. Uh, and so, I, I don't know. I mean, is this the w- will this be the U.S. election with the highest net unfavorables for both candidates? Probably. I think there's always been at least one candidate who has had high favorables, if not both, but will be in in truly a lesser of two evils election. And it will be dark and ugly and unpleasant for everyone, I think. Well, always with the cheerful predictions. James? Yeah, Lee. I, I just want somebody to tell me what a substack is. I mean, I know I've asked you this before. I'm avid readers of both of your substacks, by the way. Um, this is like this new thing that's taking the world by storm. It's like blogging, uh, but for the future. It's like that thing you tried to get me to do with the notes and the that program. I don't know. It's any. It's, no, we don't talk about Lee and that notion nonsense anymore. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but if it's come from Lee, I assume that he, you know, he's he's. It's where the everything's heading. He's our trendsetter, I guess. So from early adopter, if you will. And I do think he was the first substacker. Is that a word? on the podcast is that right lee were you before julia oh for sure yeah i mean i started i started like started like last december although i've only written four or five substacks since my substack by the way is called undercurrent events so it doesn't doesn't have that eponymous quality that julia's has I like it. And then I will, I will join, I will start, I don't know what you say, join Substack, do a Substack, probably when it declares bankruptcy and everybody's doing something else because I'm like a late adopter. But I want you, I want to be clear that Substack does not take nickels if you want to do any sort of paid activity on there. It's currency, Julia. You got to roll it up. I think her beef was it wasn't rolled up and she wanted me to count it because I'm not sure they teach people how to count change anymore. And I mean, it's fair. It was a lot of change, but because coffee is expensive, it was like a latte, like a triple latte, like a double latte. So on this question, I find it really interesting because I think it also then it highlights the tendency in our thinking that is is reflected in the debt limit discussion as well, which is this kind of like everything is it's a very rectilinear thing. History's already been written. The world is already in motion. And this is where things are going to end up. And I find that a very unsatisfying way to think about politics and to make sense of politics. And I think to a large degree, that's why when we look at politics today, how we think about politics and the stories we tell ourselves about politics is so much out of alignment with the reality of what happens on the ground. And it puts us in instances like when the debt ceiling just happens really fast and we're scratching our heads and we're like, but this doesn't this doesn't kind of align with the stories that we've been telling ourselves. But James, these are the stories that we've been telling that. I mean, part of what happens is that by telling these stories, we create the the reality, right? I mean, Trump's, you know, if we say Trump is inevitable, then that inevitability becomes part of his narrative. If if the narrative around the debt ceiling is, well, we're we're eventually going to reach a deal and it'll be at the last minute, then that narrative creates the reality. Now, maybe what you're complaining about is that we fall to fall prey too easily to these narratives, which have a self-fulfilling quality. But what we what we hate is uncertainty. Right? I mean, so much of the, the political commentary 
uh, is about well, what's going to happen? There's you know there's, there there's a huge market in prediction to resolve people's uncertainty, and I think it's a tremendous problem that we are, are so uncomfortable with uncertainty. But that's part of the, the the human condition is that we just hate uncertainty. We we want to resolve things. So that's you know you can't blame that on on any one actor. Uh, maybe, maybe we should have more random elements in our politics so we get more comfortable with uncertainty and we, we plan around it. That would be an interesting topic. It's more about how we explain explain the event to ourselves. I think that's the thing, right? And to me, at least, it's like we speak of the Republican Party and picking Trump or why would the Republican Party go with Trump? When in reality, the Republican Party has won 50 Republican parties in 50 states. And even those Republican parties are filled with lots of individual voters. And so we have, and, and I know that you and Julia both see this, but I think oftentimes what happens is a lot of other people, especially people who don't do this for a living, will gloss over that. And then they just kind of quickly just, we begin to see the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and we lose sure, sight of, sure. the, of the nuance. And I think that nuance is where the explanation lies. Sure, sure. We, we, we reify these things, but that's inevitable because you have to tell a story with some level of abstraction uh, and some level of reification. Otherwise, you're trying to create a one-to-one map of the world, which is entirely useless. Agreed. And I'm going to turn it over to Julie here in just a, a hot minute. But I do think, though, that something has changed because we now are, we say, this is what's going to happen. We are the ones with the answers. We know how things are going to unfold. And I think, and I often, if I want to know what's happening in presidential politics, I'm looking to Julie and I'm reading her work. This is not to say that scholarship isn't important. But I think we say this is what a good legislator is. And it's like this person, they're building this table. And if they can build this table past this, like that's what a good legislator is. And we in in it's almost political success is hard to reify, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I, but also hard is that we assume that the Republican Party, whether it's one thing or a bunch of things or a bunch of individuals, has an ability to accurately predict and to pick a winner. Or it assumes that we have the ability to accurately say, you know what, that's not the winner. And I think that what we lose sight of in both of these, in in my critique for both of these kind of this line of questioning is we lose sight of the fact that politics happens between individuals. It unfolds over time. And it's that interaction and reaction to individuals playing out over time that ultimately creates the possibility of what happens when someone wins. And that sounds like an overly academic, and it is, explanation of my view of politics. But I I think if we start there, then we can have a lot of these discussions. But I think we have to really, really work hard on on disciplining ourselves to see politics not as a science experiment where we know how it's going to end, or not as we're building a Ford or an Oldsmobile on a production line, and we know what the product's going to roll out in the end, like a debt limit bill has to happen. And we need to see it more as this activity in which these voters are interacting with candidates that over time, and when we see it like that, then I think we can begin to understand it a little bit better. But I don't have any answers for either one of you. But it's not just voters, it's other party elites and and, and factions. Julia? Yeah, so I actually kind of want to take this in a little bit different direction. I agree with you, James, generally about this kind of way of thinking about inevitability in our politics. And I've written about that recently, too. But the reason that I have been so fascinated with this rematch question is because of what it says about our, our party politics. And I have kind of two thoughts about this with regard to Biden and Trump. One is that 
both of them have what you need to succeed in our current nomination process. And that should actually kind of alarm people. Not because of who they are, but just because of what it says about the nomination process, which is that the, the main currency in such a protracted and chaotic and expensive kind of process that's increasingly unstructured day to day is name recognition. And so that's, I mean, I think that really tells us what went on in 2020, where the two, the two uh, Democratic nominees who were at the, you know, sort of the longest uh, lasting in the contest, were the person who came in second the previous time, Bernie Sanders, and then Joe Biden, the former vice president. What do they have in common? There were a couple of things, but the, the big thing, you know, ideologically, they're quite different and they appeal to very different people. But the big thing that that really told us is that if you were somebody like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, who started the contest without a lot of name recognition, that this is a very uphill battle if there's someone whose name recognition is higher. And I think that's basically what we're seeing with Trump as well. There's other things going on. I'm not going to totally analyze this and the you know Republican field is is shifting as we speak. Um, but I think that Trump's name recognition is a huge, huge advantage. And obviously Biden being the incumbent president, you know, what, what are you going to do? But I think that the other piece of this, and this sort of gets us to the Benjamin Harrison Grover Cleveland rematch of 1892. Um, yes, yes. I was to, waiting for that. People have been waiting for that the whole podcast. I know they have. I know they have. And also... The 1950s. I think the they stopped listening after the Nichols no. guys. I mean, to be honest with you. Well, that was that, that would buy you a campaign ad in 1888. The, I'm going to mute you both. Um, don't make me turn this podcast around. So 1956 uh, rematch, Adley Stevenson and incumbent president Dwight Eisenhower. So there's, I mean, these are both kind of interesting. In some sense, so in, 18, in 1892, you've got... Um, Harrison had defeated Cleveland, not in the popular vote, but in the Electoral College in 1888. So in some sense, you've got two candidates both running who are who are challenged in terms of putting together a national majority, but both can sort of be competitive in the Electoral College. So this makes sense in a way. But Harrison's also kind of middle way in a huge Republican fight over the kind of reformers in the party and those that want to stick with kind of more traditional machine politics. So Harrison really uh, kind of smooths over those fights. And with Cleveland, you've also got what you see in 1892 is the Democratic Party sort of going through this complex identity crisis that really continues on, I would say for decades, but you know, this is a whole nother debate. Between this more populist perspective, and this, you see in 1892, the emergence of, the, of populism, um, whereas Cleveland ultimately kind of lurches um, to the right on many of those types of issues, um, on economic issues. So you're seeing both parties have these sort of fundamental and existential kinds of internal crises in 1892. In 1956, the, the thing that has always really struck me about this is, okay, Stevenson loses to Eisenhower in 1952 and loses, loses big. Eisenhower, just, you know, incredibly popular figure and then popular president, cruises to re-election with like 56, I mean, 57% of the vote. Um, why would people run Stevenson again? Um, and I think the answer there is that Stevenson was very, was, you know, a very safe choice in terms of the internal dynamics of the party. And in his sort of civil rights politics, he was able to kind of very, um, very carefully 
maybe not quite play both sides. You still had a lot of defections among dissatisfied Southern Republicans, but Stevenson sort of comes out of those out of those tensions. He's like the closest anyone can get to a compromise candidate. And still, as with many times you see with these compromise candidates, you know, still not satisfying enough because the underlying issues are, are so intense. But I think that's really, you know, as we think about about party politics, there's been this emphasis on there on like candidate qualities and who's charismatic and who's a winner and who's electable and all this kind of stuff. And obviously that's something that people factor in as they're thinking about who to nominate. But it is also the case that you see, I think, different dynamics when parties have these really like roiling existential internal fights and when they don't. Um, And that I think is sort of like low key part of the, part of the Republican story is Trump is weirdly, you know, he's created these new fights, but he's also sort of weirdly good at papering over them. That's my, my theory about Trump. I know it's a kind of a counterintuitive theory, but Trump is so malleable on so many issues and so ambiguous. And I think this is how we got the nomination in 2016, having an actual record and kind of trying to replicate this in 2024 is kind of, it's kind of another matter. Um, but Trump is very good at sort of pivoting when he's called out on something unpopular or something controversial and sort of saying, well, I didn't do that, or that's not what we're saying. Or, you know, we did a ton of, you know, uh, prison reform type bills or criminal justice reform, some of which is real and not, um, you know, not, not just making stuff up. But he's also not very shy about pivoting in a way that, you know, he's not super bound by the truth. And that I think helps Republicans paper over some of their more existential fights. And this is also true with Democrats. Um, in a weird way, Biden gives progressives somebody to get frustrated with in a way that's satisfying. Um, and that they can kind of blame Biden for the fact that the party hasn't gone in their, in their direction. I think, and Biden has always been very good at positioning himself in the middle of the party. And there's also the fact that I think Democrats have been traditionally less good at bench building. And so that's been, you know, that's been kind of part of the problem as well. We have a long history now of Democratic presidents before Biden, being a sort of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, very charismatic, but also like in some ways very like politically isolated figures. Um, and that's not great party building. So that's, you know, that's sort of my diagnosis of why um, and how we get there and how there's certainly not perfect parallels between these other types of elections, but where we can learn something about those those dynamics and think about how that might how that might apply today. But the Occam's razor uh, kind of explanation is just that these are these are candidates who have really high name recognition and our party nomination system is really set up to advantage candidates who have high name recognition out the gate. So that's that's what I've been thinking and I appreciate everyone letting me have this moment to have my Adelaide Stevenson and Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison rants that I have been holding in all weekend trying not to subject my spouse or like the people at the drive-thru and the sort of like, ma'am, this is a Wendy's kind of situation. I have avoided it and here we are on politics in question. Anyone want the last word? I mean, I just want to say that's what we're here for, to make our spouses happier by talking about politics elsewhere. Yeah, or, you know, they'll just put their earbuds in. <laughs> I assume you don't notice. Just one one other, I, I can't resist, one other point about 1892 
is that like the politics of that era is very similar to the politics of this era in the sense that both parties are roughly balanced uh, and have their their competing strongholds. Uh, except the difference then was that political identities, uh, you know, I think were were less tied to ideologies. Politics was national politics was kind of less focused on the culture war issues. In fact, they had largely faded. Uh, so, you know, that there was a big realignment, of course, as we all know, in 1896. And so the that that sort of stuck period eventually broke. I think the stuckness of our deepening party divides are much more significant now. So I'm not expecting 2028 to be a realigning election, but who knows? Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, The possibility and yet um, maybe slim chance of something changing in our party politics. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.